Who says you need a plus one for a satisfying date night? Meet Hello Date Night, the book box that contains everything you need for a perfect night of pleasure. Each box comes with an autographed copy of The Bad Girl List, a discreet feminine pleasure toy with a matching travel bag, and a sensual rose candle. Say yes to your perfect date night and head over to mariematthew.com to purchase this limited edition book box today. Hello and welcome to season one of Romance with Heart and Heat, your podcast and YouTube show for contemporary rom-com audiobook serials. My name is Marie Matthew and I'm the author of the stories you're going to hear on this channel. The title of season one is The Bad Girl List and this is a fake dating second chance rom-com set in California wine country. Find out how one life-changing vacation list puts the heart of Dominique Chen on the line when she meets sexy wine grower Trevor Moretti. The content of this channel is intended for audience members that are 18 years and older. There is some explicit content on this channel. There is light swearing and there are some explicit spicy scenes. So I don't want any surprises as people move into the story so you have been warned. Be sure to stick around at the end of each episode for author commentary. And if you have any questions or comments, you can drop them into the comments section in YouTube, or you can also send me an email at romancingmarie at gmail.com. I'll do my best to answer questions and comments in future episodes on the show. Please like and subscribe to my channel on your favorite platform, whatever that happens to be. And please help me spread the word and share the show with your friends. Now, as you're listening along, if you get to the point where the tension's too much and you just can't wait to find out what happens next, you can head over to mariematthew.com and you can purchase the complete season of The Bad Girl List over on my website. It's available in ebook format, audiobook format, and there's also autographed hardbacks and paperbacks. So you will get the entire season for free on YouTube and the podcast. But again, if you just can't wait, head over to mariematthew.com. Thanks so much for listening. And now it's time for some romance with heart and heat. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 1. Clones. Dominique. There is nothing I hate more than high-heeled shoes. I mean, who spends money to feel like they might tip over at any moment? If that was my thing, I would have pursued gymnastics when I was a kid. Not that my parents didn't try to coax me into it. You'd think a petite Chinese-American girl would be a shoe-in for backflips and the balance beam, but it only took one class for me to know gymnastics was not my thing. That didn't stop my parents from forcing me to take classes for the next two years. Chinese families aren't fans of leisure time. If you aren't being productive, you may as well be dead. It wasn't until I started showing an interest in drawing that they agreed to let me quit gymnastics and take up art lessons. Second to my dislike of high-heeled shoes or tight clothes. I hate the feeling of being constricted, of not being able to breathe for fear of my hips bulging out or tearing a seam. If I was allowed to script my perfect life, I would wear baggy cargo pants and tennis shoes every day, and I'd have a makeup-free face and my hair in two messy buns on top of my head. My perfect life would not include me standing in a stuffy conference room in cheap plastic shoes from Walmart with aching, disgustingly sweaty feet. My toes are going to be white and wrinkly by the time this day is over, not to mention blistered. My perfect life also doesn't have me stuffed into a tight black pencil dress with enough makeup and hair product to suffocate someone. Yet here I am in the conference room of Presidio Designs, doing my best not to teeter on my heels as I make my way to the front of the room. Our client, Tim Moretti from Moretti Winery, one of the most acclaimed wineries in Sonoma County's wine country, leans back in his chair, 
Surveying the wine label redesigns proposed by two of my colleagues. He's an older man with distinguished silver hair who looks sharp in his dark blue suit and gold watch. The six label redesign options displayed in front of him are all versions of the same thing. A whitish background with black or red lettering, followed by a black and white sketch of a vineyard or of the Italian-esque Moretti tasting room. They all look like clones of the original label we are redesigning, the flagship wine of Moretti Winery. The original label is a light cream on textured paper stock, with a vineyard illustration done in watercolors. The Moretti name is in bold black text. Old Vine Zinfandel, the varietal, and Dry Creek Valley, the appellation where the grapes are grown, are in red. This wine sells for a whopping $150 per bottle. I stop beside presentation boards made by my colleagues, John and Lisa, who are also assigned to this project. My fingers grow sweaty as I dip them into my presentation folder, my heart rate spiking in anticipation of what I'm about to do. The design proposals approved by my boss, Sophia, are all clones of the original label just like John and Lisa's. In other words, more of the same. Monotonous. Nothing fresh or interesting at all. Tim Moretti may as well have hired someone from Fiverr to knock out these boring, lackluster designs, not an upscale San Francisco design agency. The proposals I pull from my folder looked like the clones decided to kick off their shoes, hop into a convertible, and live a little. There is color across my designs, everything from bright orange to pale blue and I'd completely scrap the idea of a vineyard or a tasting room illustration, opting instead for creative treatments on the family name Moretti. These designs are not the designs Sophia approved. In fact, she scrapped all three of them early on in the design process, calling them drastic deviations of the artistic vision. She sent me back to the drawing board, insisting on classic revisions, also known as clone designs. My heart pounds erratically as I set my drastic deviations on the last presentation stand. From the look on Sophia's face, she's pissed. By discarding her approved designs and presenting these instead, I'm blatantly undermining her. This may make me sound like a rebel, but I'm the complete opposite. I shove myself into uncomfortable shoes and clothes in the name of being a professional. I'm the person who arrives 10 minutes early to work every day, works through lunches, and delivers on projects days before a deadline. There isn't a rebellious bone in my body. But I had sat in on the Zoom call when we did the intake interview with Tim Moretti. I heard him use words like fresh, modern, and elegant. My designs are all of those things. There's nothing fresh or different in the clone designs Sophia opted to show him today. Tim Moretti leans forward, the first sign of movement I've seen from him since the presentation began. He rests his forearms on the table, a slight dent between his brow as he scrutinizes my designs. These are unconventional. Silence descends. Tim continues to study the design boards. I can hear the clock ticking on the wall. Sophia glares at me. John and Lisa stare at me as though I've lost my mind. My stomach rebounds off the floor and into my esophagus, making me feel sick with distress. These are all great designs, Tim says at last. I'm going to take these boards back home to review with my family. I'll get back to you in a few days with feedback. Take all the time you need, Sophia says, rising to her feet to gather up the design boards for Tim. We look forward to hearing your family's feedback. Sophia walks in her four-inch heels like she'd been born in them, leading Tim back to the reception area as she makes small talk. I scurry back to my cubicle, hoping she'll forget about me. Dom, what were you thinking? John hisses, poking his head around our shared cubicle wall. I don't know. I swallow, eyes darting. I just thought, crap, there's Sophia. She's coming. John jerks himself back to his computer. I grab my mouse and pretend to be absorbed in my email, even though my heart is pounding and I'm too nervous to read a thing. Dominique, can I see you in my office, please? Sophia pauses beside my cubicle with a fake smile I have come to recognize. It's the one she wears when she's about to tell us we lost a bid proposal, or a design brief was awarded to another one of the project managers in Presidio. It's also the expression that tells me I'm in trouble. I follow her through the cubicle rows and into her office, feeling like the naughty kindergarten kid who's been called to see the principal. 
Sophia shuts the door behind her. What the hell was that, she demands, rounding on me. I swallow, trying to rally the defense case I had mentally prepared while revamping my design boards. Defying Sophia had been a risky proposition. So risky, in fact, that I'd talked myself out of it until 10 o'clock last night. Then, lying in bed surrounded by boring white wine labels jumping over the proverbial fence, I'd grabbed my approved foam presentation boards and cut them up with a knife. I'd pulled an all-nighter, taking my three original unapproved designs and refining them. The result was three labels that were fresh, modern, and elegant. All the things Mr. Moretti had asked for. They sure as hell aren't clones. What the hell were you thinking, Sophia fumes. Do you know how hard I worked to land this account for Presidio? If Tim Moretti approves one of our designs, our agency could be awarded the redesign of the entire Moretti portfolio. I'm sorry, I say. I know I went against protocol. You just showed a client three designs I did not approve. I know, but when we did the intake call with Mr. Moretti, he said he wanted to freshen things up and take his label in a new direction. He kept saying, I know what he said, Sophia snaps, but you know how important it is to key into the defining elements of the competitive set. She snatches a printed PowerPoint presentation and holds it up, smacking one finger against the paper for emphasis. This is the competitive set he provided. The bottles she points to on the sheet are more clones, more white labels with boring vineyard and winery pictures. This is the set where our redesign needs to live, on the shelf with these bottles. He wants the Moretti brand to stand out on the shelf, I reply. How does making a clone label make him stand out? A what? A clone. I point at the PowerPoint printout. How does making clones of these labels help Moretti Winery stand out? Tim said he wanted to be different. You weren't hired to get into our client's head, Sophia says. You were hired to follow directions. She lets out an exasperated sigh and tosses the printouts back onto her desk. I'm sorry, Dominique, but this just isn't working out. I can't have someone on my team I can't trust. I'm going to have to let you go. I blink, taking a step back as heat rushes to my face. For one mistake? You're firing me for one mistake? I knew Sophia would be angry, but I hadn't expected this. I pull regular all-nighters for Presidio Designs, and she knows it. This might be the first time you pulled a stunt like this in front of a client, but you're consistently coloring outside the lines, Sophia says. Every round of first draft proposals are designs from the Twilight Zone. It's like you never even read the briefs. I do read the briefs, I say, trying to backpedal. But why do we always assume our clients want clone art? What's wrong with throwing something out there that walks the edge? I mean, we're a design firm. We're supposed to design. That's where you're wrong. Clients choose to work with Presidio because they know we won't waste their time with stuff that won't hold up in the market. Being at home among the competitive set is important. There's a reason wines are organized by price point and varietal on the grocery store shelf. A customer looking for two buckchuck doesn't want a $100 bottle of Moretti Old Vine Zin, or vice versa. Designs that don't key into customer expectations are a waste of time. Time is money, Dominique, and today you wasted my time, Presidio's time, and Tim Moretti's time. Can't we at least wait and see what the Moretti family says about them? I ask. What if? We already saw Tim's reaction to them, Sophia says. He called them unconventional. That wasn't a compliment. Sophia shakes her head. I'm sorry, but my decision stands. Pack up your cubicle and be gone within the hour. If you leave quietly, I'll make sure you get paid for the vacation time you have scheduled for tomorrow and next week. As she exits her office and leaves me alone, I think I might be sick. My face is flaming hot, my body tingly from shock, and my feet hurt like hell in these stupid shoes. What the royal fuck had I been thinking? I had convinced myself that switching out the proposals had been a good idea, that I knew better than Sophia what Moretti Winery wanted. I'd spun a magical tale, one where Tim Moretti exclaimed in delight and surprise at my designs, and one where Sophia finally stopped scrapping my best work. As I stand there, reeling from my bad decision, something cracks open inside me. A very unwelcome feeling rushes through my body, chasing away the shame and humiliation. 
It's the same feeling I have every time Sophia promotes someone else over me, and when I think about Oliver leaving me for his tennis partner. The white-hot sensation roaring in my ears and making my spine straighten is anger. No matter what I do, it's never enough. All the extra hours I've logged for Sophia don't count for anything. One toe out of line and now I'm fired. It was the same with Oliver. I spent the last five years supporting his tennis obsession and his accounting career. And what does it get me? Dumped for a 5'10 blonde. I stalk out to my cubicle, grab my backpack and shove in my few belongings. A picture of me and my cousin Annika and my sketchbook and colored pencils, which I kept in a drawer but barely touched in my two years with Presidio. John's cubicle is empty, so I don't get a chance to say goodbye. I make sure to take the back way out of the office so I won't pass by Sophia. I can only hope she makes good on her promise to pay me for the time off I had scheduled if I stay out of sight. On my way out the back stairwell, I pass the flyer for the company picnic. It's as unimaginative as the rest of the art produced by the overpriced firm, a piece of clip art with people playing frisbee under a smiling sun. I pull out a pen and draw a pair of sunglasses on the sun with a joint hanging out of his mouth. Then I add a fart cloud to the illustration of a woman who could pass for Sophia. The entire episode is akin to an out-of-body experience. It had been the same last night, when I was six espressos in and working frantically on the Moretti wine label proposals. It was fun, liberating, like running down the street naked without a care in the world of what anyone thinks about the cellulite deposits on my ass or my small boobs. Except Dominique Chen doesn't do stuff like this. Dominique Chen doesn't break the rules or defy figures of authority or go rogue on a group project. Or at least, she hasn't until today. It isn't until I'm three blocks down the busy San Francisco street that the reality of the situation catches up with me. The anger dries up and disappears, leaving in its wake a shocked frozen river of what the hell did I just do? I lost my job, and not to budget cuts or a corporate sale, but to my own stupidity. On top of that, I defaced the company picnic flyer on the way out. What if someone figures out I did that and tells Sophia? Will I still get my vacation pay? Since Oliver and I broke up two months ago, money has been tight. My paycheck barely covers the exorbitant rent for my shoebox-sized studio. Without a job, I won't have a place to live much longer. Holy shit. I stop in the middle of the sidewalk, barely noticing when a jogger nearly runs into me. What the hell have I done? Chapter 2. The Bad Girl List. Dominique. At the beginning of my junior year of high school, I got a B-plus in my trigonometry class. I'd been crushed. My non-Chinese friends couldn't understand why I was so upset. A B-minus is still great, they had said. Your GPA is still over a 4.0. But my cousin, Annika, had understood. B-plus is an Asian F, she had proclaimed, patting me on the shoulder. The problem is that you buy into our family's high standards. The trick is not to aim so high. The last time I brought home a B-plus, my dad took me out for boba. There are perks to not being as smart as everyone else in the family. Getting fired was equivalent to the Asian F I'd gotten my junior year. What were my parents going to say? What about the rest of the family? Compounding my anxiety was the fact that I hadn't told them about breaking up with Oliver. My parents loved Oliver. We'd been together since sophomore year at Berkeley. In their eyes, he was perfection on a platter. Chinese? Check. Berkeley grad? Check. Promising career? Check. Polite? Check. Nice family? Check. Entry-level job at a prestigious San Francisco financial district accounting firm right out of college? Check. Not only am I on the brink of being the source of family heartache, I'm going to lose my studio if I don't figure something out. And tomorrow is the first day of the annual Chen family girls trip. 
This year, we're going to Healdsburg, a boutique town in Sonoma County for a week of wine tasting. The trip was organized by the Chen aunties, which include Auntie Louise, my mom, Auntie Deb, Annika's mom, and our Auntie Helen. Some of the most popular family meal topics are A. My boyfriend, B. My job, and C. The successful life I've built for myself. This is nothing short of a national disaster. I need to bring in the big guns. To be exact, I need my cousin. Annika likes to say my high achievements mean she can fly under the radar in all aspects of her life. She'll know what to do. By the time I arrive at her studio in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, full-blown panic has settled in. I slam my finger on her buzzer. Who is it? My cousin's voice crackles out of the intercom. She waits tables at a high-end restaurant on the wharf, which is why she's home at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. Annika, it's me. Let me in. Dom? Yeah, it's me. What are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be at work? Will you just let me in? Geez, what's got your panties in a twist? She hangs up before I can retort. A second later, the door buzzes and I hurry upstairs. When I step into her studio, Annika is still in her pajamas and painting her fingernails a deep red. Her hair is a dark brown, her half-Asian features a perfect blend of her Chinese mother and Irish father. Though our faces have a similar shape and we're both petite, I'm full Chinese with thick black hair. The windows in the studio are open, letting in fresh air and the delicious scent of pork from the banh mi shop downstairs. It is, hands down, the best banh mi dive in the city. But not even the smell of the Vietnamese sandwiches is enough to brighten my mood today. Don't tell me, Annika says without looking up, you got fired. My jaw drops. How did you know? Wait what? Annika's attention jerks, causing her hand to slip and a long red line of red enamel polish to drag across her index finger. I was being sarcastic. Did you really get fired? Yeah. I close the door and pop myself up onto the kitchen counter beside her stove. The two chairs in the room are covered with clothes. One with clean laundry, the other with dirty so there isn't any other place to sit. Damn perfect Dominique got fired? Annika says, using an old nickname she gave me in high school. She returns her nail polish brush to the jar, taking a moment to wipe the excess from her finger with a tissue. I spill my guts, telling her everything from the clones to Sophia to my late-night rebellion and to my firing from the prestigious design firm. Wait a second. Annika holds up her hand to stop me when I get to the part about drinking six espressos in the middle of the night as fuel for my rebellion. This is too good. I need a drink. She grabs a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from her fridge and pours us both a glass. Normally, I'd never drink in the middle of the afternoon on a Thursday, but today seems like a good day to change that rule. I take down two big gulps. Geez cuz, can you try to enjoy it? This is a good one. The sales guy gave me his sample case after I agreed to put it on our list. Annika is the wine buyer for the restaurant where she works. She's a pro at getting free stuff from the sales guys who want to be on her wine list. I'm not in any shape to enjoy good wine. I hold out the glass to her. You should take it back and give me something trashier, like two buckchuck. Annika huffs and waves her hand, as if I'd get caught with two buckchuck. I might live in a shoebox and wait tables for a living, but that doesn't mean I don't have standards. Now continue on with your story. She nudges her pile of dirty laundry onto the floor with her foot, then sits down in her chair. I take another drink, a distant part of my brain registering the wine is quite good, and finish the rest of my story. I leave nothing out. Annika is the one person on the planet I can be completely honest with. I even tell her about drawing a joint and a fart cloud on the company picnic flyer on my way out the door. When I finish, Annika pours herself a second glass. She swirls the liquid around, a slight dent on her brow as though deep in contemplation. Are you going to say anything, I demand, unable to stand her silence. I'm boyfriendless, jobless, I might have to borrow against my 401k just to make rent, and our family vacation starts tomorrow. What am I supposed to do? Well, for one thing, you can come up with a list of new topics to discuss at dinner time. 
Annika, I'm being serious. So am I. Annika nudges aside a stack of books on her table to make room for her wine glass. You want to know what I think? I think this is the best thing that's happened to you since you got dumped by Oliver. How can you say that? Getting fired and getting dumped are not exactly life goals. You forget that I know you, Annika says. The real you. Presidio has been sucking the soul out of you for the last two years. They have you stuffed into clothes you hate and hiding under 10 pounds of makeup. The dom I know loves comfy clothes and was born with colored pencils and a sketchbook in her hands. When was the last time you drew something just for fun? Her words skate a little too close to the truth tucked down inside me but I can't bring myself to agree with her. It's a good company, I say. One of the best in California. Don't you remember how much time Andy Helen spent researching design firms for me in my senior year of college? Oh, I remember. Annika rolls her eyes. I also remember in high school when you told your mom you wanted to major in art. All the aunties ambushed you at our 4th of July party and convinced you to change to digital design. They just wanted me to pick a major where I could have a good job. They convinced you to walk away from your passion, Annika says. Look, I'm not here to argue their motives. I'm here because tomorrow is the start of our girls' trip. What am I going to say when I see my mom? When she finds out about Oliver and my job, she's going to freak. Auntie Deb and Auntie Helen are going to be there. They're all going to think I'm a failure. Maybe I should pretend to be sick so I can stay home and work on my resume. Don't be stupid, Annika says. You work like a dog. You've earned this vacation. When you see your mom, just pretend like everything is fine. You can come clean with her after the trip is over. I can't lie to my mom. Who said anything about lying? It's called evasive communication, Dom. Just don't volunteer any extra information. If they ask how Oliver is, just say he's fine. If they ask about work, say everything is fine. Believe me, they're going to be too excited with their Groupons and their schedules to worry too much about you. As far as the family is concerned, you've arrived. I'm the one they worry about. Not even Groupons and schedules can distract them from bugging me about going back to college. She has a point. But still, what if I slip? What if, goddamn you tried too hard? This is your problem. This is why you stayed with that asshole who treated you like a second-class citizen for five years. You were more worried about being a good girlfriend than you were about him treating you right. I'm not in the mood for an Oliver lecture. Annika never liked Oliver, even in the beginning. You know what your problem is? Annika says. You've never done anything for yourself. Ever. Not once in your entire life. You're a people pleaser. This is why I never aim high. You can't disappoint anyone if they don't expect anything of you. I bet you've already given yourself a firm lecture on how at your next job, you will never ever bend a rule, not even a tiny one. I don't reply. I had in fact given myself a firm lecture on rule-breaking on my way to her studio, Pinky swearing to myself that I would never pull a stunt like that again. Annika levels a triumphant finger at me. Nailed it, didn't I? I fold my arms over my chest. Maybe. Something in Annika's face softens. Dom, the problem isn't that you defied your boss. The problem is that you stayed in a job you never liked. You stayed there because it made the family proud. You're always afraid of disappointing people. You need to be more like me and not give a flying fuck. Her mouth draws together as she studies me. We're going to fix this, Dom. Fix what? Fix you. Annika levels a finger at me. I'm going to teach you how to be a bad girl. I'm going to teach you how to make your own rules and play by them. A seed of alarm sprouts in my belly. You're going to what? Annika jumps up and rifles through a pile of miscellaneous stuff on her floor. I'm going to teach you how to be a bad girl on our vacation. You're going to learn how to do shit that makes you uncomfortable so you can break out of this lifelong rut you've been in. You're insane, I say. No, what's insane is staying with a guy who always puts you third in line after his career and his tennis obsession. What's insane is letting some snobby design company shit on your beautiful, creative soul. It's time for damn perfect Dominique to learn how to be a bad girl. I'm going to help you cut loose and get your life on track. Annika grins in delight as she unearths a small post-it pad. 
Number one on the list. You're going to get so drunk that you puke. Aniko, wait. Two. You're going to smoke a joint. I'm not doing drugs. Pot is legal now, dummy. And you're going to smoke it on vacation. We're going to come up with a list of 10 things you'd never do, one for each day of vacation. Annika's grin is gleeful. God, I can't wait to see you stoned. She returns her attention to her post-it. 3. You're going to get a tattoo. A what? Don't worry, it doesn't have to be a big one. And you can put it somewhere no one will ever see it. Annika studies me then says, Number 4. You're going to sneak out. I'm not doing any of that stuff. You're crazy. No, I'm a genius. God, you're too Chinese sometimes. Let the half-white girl inject some fun into your life. Annika draws a circle in the air around her face, indicating her biracial features. She credits her Irish heritage to her ballsy approach to life. 5. You're going to lie to the aunties. I don't care what you lie about, but you have to lie about something. I refrain from arguing, even though just the idea of trying to lie to my mom and the aunties makes my stomach clench. Annika is on a roll though, and there's not a lot I can do to stop her when she gets like this. The best thing to do is to play along until she's worn herself out. Number 6. You're going to buy something nice for yourself during vacation from one of the cute winery boutique stores. It has to be something that's not on sale. I roll my eyes and remind myself that arguing is pointless. No one in my family except for Annika ever ever pays full price for anything. I'm certainly not going to do that now that I don't have a job. Number 7. Karaoke. Annika pokes the side of her cheek with the end of her pen. 8. We're going to break into a hotel and go skinny dipping in the middle of the night. I roll my eyes. Are you done yet? No. We need 10 things. Ooh, I got it. You're going to say no to the aunties sometime during vacation. The idea makes me squirm too. Not that I'm agreeing to the bad girl list, but if I was, number 9 would need to be crossed off. Annika sees my expression and relents. I don't care if it's turning down a Groupon for dinner at Sizzler or telling them you won't take your shoes off in the house. Pick something easy if you want. Since when does telling the aunties I won't take my shoes off inside count as easy? You know what I mean. And pretending to be sick doesn't count. You have to tell them no like you have to use the word. And let's see number 10. It has to be something good. Eat a pint of ice cream every day and see if I can still fit into my pants at the end of vacation, I suggest. No. Skydive? I ask. That's better but not bold enough. Wait. I got it. She gives me an evil smile. You're going to have a vacation fling. How am I supposed to find a guy to have a fling with? Please, it's not that hard, Annika says. Maybe we'll combine that with number one or two, just to make it more fun. Flings are always more fun when you're drunk or stoned. And by fling, I mean sex. You are going to find a guy and have vacation sex with him at least once. If he's good, you can do him as many times as you want. I'm not doing any of that stuff on the list, I say. Annika frowns in consternation. Why not, Dom? What have you got to lose? Being perfect hasn't made you happy. Why not take this as an opportunity to throw caution to the wind and live a little? Things really can't get worse for you. The stuff on that list is all the stuff you do, I reply. They're not my thing. I mean seriously, a fling? The only guy I've ever been with is Oliver. That practically makes you a virgin. Tell that to your fling. You'll think it's hot as hell. Are you done yet? I ask. Annika scans her list. Yeah, I think so. This will give you a good start to getting your life back on track. Clearly, Annika and I have different definitions of what it means to get one's life back on track. She might think the bad girl list is my salvation, but in truth, it's going to be a spruced up resume that writes this ship. I'm not doing the bad girl list, Annika. She narrows her eyes at me. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Want to know why? I huff. Sure. 
Tell me why I'm going to agree to your insane list, because if you do, I'll let you move in with me for six months, rent-free. That will give you time to find a job you actually like without the stress of maxing out your credit card or borrowing against your 401k. I open my mouth about to refuse. By this point, I'm on autopilot with her. How many ways can a person say no before the other person hears them? But before I can speak, her words register. I blink, studying my cousin, expecting to see sarcasm in her face. There's not a trace of it. She looks like she means it. Are you serious? I ask. If I agree to the bad girl list, you'll let me move in rent-free for six months? Yep. How about that for a deal you can't refuse? This is over-the-top generous, even for a family member. Annika's rent is almost as steep as mine and her place is smaller. And she'd let me crash here, free of charge, all in exchange for doing the 10 silly things on her list? This is better than the clearance sale on holiday decorations the day after Christmas. Okay, I say. This will give me time to find a job I actually like and avoid doing something truly horrendous, like working for a temp agency. Her eyes light up. Okay, you'll do it? You'll agree to do everything on the bad girl list? I'll do everything on that list, I say. And after I do, I'm moving in with you. Annika throws back her head and laughs. This is going to be the best vacation ever. Chapter 3. Blue Butterflies. Trevor. I step out onto the back porch of the vineyard bungalow with my thermos of black coffee. Tequila my three-legged dog hops along after me. Since the day I rescued her from a drunken trip to Tijuana with my younger brother, she's never far from my side. She's a medium-sized dog with golden brown fur and a white face. Her dark eyebrows always seem to be on the move. The morning is perfect. It's still dark outside, the eastern horizon tinged with the faintest smears of gray. My breath fogs in the air as I exhale and take a seat in my Adirondack lounge chair. I scrunch to one side and tap the cushion beside me. Come on tequila. My dog turns in a happy circle, a move that resembles something out of a twisted circus due to her missing leg, before hopping up next to me. She gives my hand a lick before happily resting her head between her paws. A contented huff escapes her throat as I scratch her between the ears, her favorite spot. I pick up my thermos and pour myself a cup of coffee and take a sip, sighing in contentment as the warm caffeine washes down my throat. Morning is my favorite time of the day. Tequila and I have coffee on the back deck together every day and watch the sun come up. The vineyards that have been in my family for four generations come to life with birds and insects. The best thing about mornings, no people, no annoying tourists blundering around asking drunk questions, no overbearing family members encouraging me to get on with my life, and no younger brother trying to wheedle me into his latest bad idea. Just me, tequila, and 30 minutes of peaceful uninterrupted bliss. But as I sit there nursing my second cup of coffee, the crunch of tires on gravel tickles my ears. I frown, tilting my head to one side as suspicion makes my neck tense. There are very few people who would be out here on this dirt road at this time of day. Only one actually, and I'm not in the mood to see him. Yep, that is the sound of my father's Tesla. The engine is silent, but in the solitude of the morning, the sound of tires on the bumpy road is like an air horn going off. What the hell does he want at 5.30 in the morning? Tequila's floppy ears flick backward as her brows lift in concern. In a high-pitched voice, I pretend to be Tequila. Silly human, we're talking about your dad. He's coming to make a sales call. Is there a way to get rid of him? I ask my dog. Maybe we can hide in the vineyard. Silly human, I reply in my dog voice. You know he doesn't take no for an answer. Hiding will only delay the inevitable. Shit. I run my hand through my shaggy hair. Come on girl, you'd better go inside. Tequila doesn't like people. Her life on the streets of Tijuana had left her jumpy and nervous. Though steadfastly loyal to me, she cowers from everyone else and is prone to barking and growling. Tequila runs inside with her tail between her legs when I open the slider for her. I briefly consider going inside after her and pretending to be asleep, but dad will never buy it. He likes mornings as much as I do, though for different reasons. 
irritation prickles along my shoulders as I stalk around the bungalow to the front. My morning bliss is shattered by the bright headlights of my dad's black Tesla. Morning Trevor. My dad, the charming Tim Moretti, gets out of the car, already dressed for the day in his pressed collared work shirt and slacks. I brought your favorite coffee, thought we could watch the sunrise together. He holds it out like a peace offering, his wide salesman smile splitting his face. He's perfectly aware of my morning ritual and the fact that he's interrupted it. I have my own coffee thanks. If you're here to make another sales pitch, don't bother. My father's pretense at pleasantness instantly morphs into a frown of disapproval. Trevor you can't keep doing this. I decide to play dumb. What exactly are you accusing me of doing? Running our vineyard operations, producing the best yields Moretti Winery has ever had. I gesture to the vineyards that surround my bungalow. Dad is silent for long enough that I almost squirm. Almost. Trevor, he says at last, you rarely leave this house except to go to work. Tequila gets anxious when I'm gone. You never see any of your old friends. It's been eight weeks since the last time you made it to Sunday dinner. This isn't you. Maybe it wasn't me when I was younger but I've changed dad. The easygoing guy my dad is referring to is dead and buried in the ground. It's been two years Trev. L wouldn't want you to live like this. The softness in dad's tone makes something inside me snap. It doesn't help that tonight is the two-year anniversary of the accident, but I doubt dad remembers the exact date. The reality that it's been two full years hasn't even sunk in with me yet, or my mood would be even worse than it already is. I can still remember the way the storm smelled, the way lightning sizzled in the air and made all the hairs along my arms stand up on end, the way the rain drenched my skin and turned me numb. I can still remember the feel of Elle's blood as it soaked my pants, how it had been hot in contrast to the cold storm that lashed all around us. Her dress had been black, the hem embroidered with blue butterflies. Elle loved butterflies. Tequila starts to bark inside the house as I round on my father, nostrils flaring. Angry words gather on the tip of my tongue. I'm sorry. Dad holds up his hands. I shouldn't have said that about L. I swallow and stand there in silence. Tequila calms and stops barking, though I can hear her whining. Images of a black dress with blue butterflies and warm blood in a thunderstorm flash through my head. I roughly shove away the memories, trying to maintain some level of control. I'm not going to be around forever, son, Dad says. Someone has to take my place. It's time for you to step up. I knew this is why he had come. Dad wants me to take over the sales division of Moretti Winery. He wants me to spend three quarters of my year living out of hotels, flying on airplanes, and schmoozing with restaurant owners, retailers, and liquor distributors. There had been a time in my life when following my father's footsteps had been my greatest ambition. All that had changed two years ago when I lost L. I'm in charge of the vineyard operations, I grind out. You can't hide in the vineyards forever. I'm not hiding. Moretti Winery wouldn't exist without the grapes. It wouldn't produce award-winning wine if not for the biodynamic farming techniques my uncle implemented before he died. Practices I meticulously maintain and oversee. Find someone else to groom for the sales position. Why don't you work with one of those professional headhunters? Moretti Winery wouldn't exist without the stable of loyal clients I've spent the last two decades cultivating, Dad says. They don't want to be passed off to some no-name I've hired from a headhunter. They want to work with the family. Our family. I almost tell him to go talk to Thomas, except my younger brother is more interested in having a good time than selling wine. And my sister, Celine, is off on a winemaking internship in Italy. Neither of them can get me out of this mess. But dad doesn't take no for an answer. It's why he's so damn good at sales. To him the word no just means he hasn't found the right hook. There's always a way to yes, as he likes to say. Look. I need to harvest the valerian and make the infusions before it gets too warm. I have to go. I turn my back on him, heading around to the carport to where my 1986 Ford F-150 pickup sits. It was a 16th birthday gift from my grandpa. The paint is peeling and the truck has more dents than not, but I'd take it any day over my dad's Tesla. I fucking love it almost as much as I love my dog. Trevor. Dad comes after me. 
at least stop by the house tonight to look at the label redesign proposals I picked up from Presidio yesterday. I'd really like your opinion on them. Send them to Celine. My sister is better with style than all the Moretti boys combined. At least come to Sunday night dinner. Your mother misses you. The last time I came to Sunday dinner mom ambushed me with a blind date. She had invited the niece of a woman from her bridge club without telling me. That had been a disaster. I'd been a cold dickwad to the girl. She hadn't deserved that, but I'd been too angry to apply common decency to the situation. Your mother just wants you to be happy. Dad clears his throat. And if you don't come meet the next girl on her list at dinner this Sunday, she's going to cook up another way to introduce the two of you. There's a list? It's your mother, Trevor. Of course there's a list. She's making a list of girls to set me up with? If a frantic round of barking from tequila is any indication, I may have raised my voice. Your mother just wants to help. I don't need help. I'm fine. Using a Tijuana rescue dog as an excuse to become a recluse is not doing fine. Tell her I already met someone. Tell her that if she cancels the blind date, I'll come to dinner. What did you just say? I'll come to Sunday dinner if she cancels the blind date. Truth be told, I miss my family. The hard part is seeing the pain in their eyes when they look at me, like I'm a broken bird in need of tending. Not the blind date part, Dad says. The other part. My mind rewinds the last few seconds. The part about meeting someone? Dad scrutinizes my face. Is it true? It's a lie, of course. I hadn't planned for it to come out. I'm about to take it back, but the way Dad is looking at me right now, like maybe I'm a bird recovering from a wound rather than a broken one in need of massive surgery, makes me pause. Lying has never been my go-to. That's my brother's arena, who can lie like a con artist in Vegas when he wants to. But the hope I see in dad's eyes gives me pause. One little white lie can't hurt anyone, just a little lie to get them off my back. And maybe I can go to Sunday dinner and enjoy time with my family, without everyone looking at me like I need to be rescued. I just met her, I say cautiously, testing out the waters of my deception. It's nothing serious. But you like her. Shit. The hope in dad's eyes is like a gut punch. Kinda, I say before I can think better of it. Yeah, I like her. I shrug, backpedaling so as not to get his hopes up. Like I said, I just met her. I'm not rushing into anything, but yeah, she's neat. I'll tell your mother, dad says. I'll get her to cancel the blind date. You invite your new friend. No, I say firmly. Dad, don't oversell this to mom. I just met this girl. Things could flame out in a week. Dad's eyes narrow. Did you really meet a girl? Yes, I met someone. Then invite her to Sunday dinner. Dad, invite her, or I'll let your mother continue to play matchmaker. He's testing me to see if I'm bluffing. Well fuck him. If you're going to make a big deal out of this, I'm not coming to dinner. If you don't come up to the house for dinner, I'll bring everyone here. We'll invade the bungalow and eat dinner in your place. Shit, he'll do it too. Dad doesn't bluff. Fine, I'll invite her. Now I just have to find someone to bring. Shit, will you please manage mom's expectations? Like I said, we just met. Of course son, but dad's grin betrays the truth. For an instant, the salesman I grew up with completely disappears, and all I see is a father desperate for his son to be happy. He's not going to manage anything. He's going to call my mother on the way back to the house, and within the next 30 minutes, the entire family is going to think I have a new girlfriend. I almost come clean. Then I think about something Thomas said to me back in high school, as he was preparing to sneak out of the house with his friends. Lies aren't all bad Trevor, he'd said. I'm doing mom and dad a favor. They don't want to know their youngest son is going to sneak into a private golf course to go ice blocking with his friends and smoke weed. It would just stress them out. My parents are stressed. They've been worried about me for the last two years. Maybe Thomas is right. Maybe one little lie really will do them a favor. Maybe it will work out for me too. I just need to find someone to invite to dinner. Someone who's willing to play along with my white lie and won't bother me later. If I can find someone to do that, it just might buy me a few months of peace from my parents. Tequila has stopped barking. Dad is still standing there with that broad smile on his face. I can't take it anymore. I gotta go dad. I need to harvest the valerian while it's still in bloom. 
Okay. See you Sunday, Trevor. See you Sunday. I turn away and hurry back inside to get tequila, trying not to feel anxious about the lie I've just released into the wilds of the Moretti family. Tonight is the two-year anniversary of the accident. I have an all-nighter scheduled with my wine fridge. I should be getting shit-faced, not worrying about a date for Sunday dinner. I need to text Thomas. Maybe my brother can help me. He must have a friend who would agree to pretend to be my date for one night, if only to get my family off my back. Who says you need a plus one for a satisfying date night? Join Dot Wines and author Marie Matthew for your perfect Valentine's night in. For a limited time, get a bottle of Dot's rosé wine paired with a Hello Date Night book box. This Valentine's Day special comes with an autographed paperback copy of The Bad Girl List, a discreet feminine pleasure toy with a matching travel bag, a sensual rose candle, and a flirty bottle of Dot rosé wine. If you only want the wine with the book, we have that option available as well. Say yes to your perfect date night and head over to dotwinery.com to purchase this limited edition pairing today. Chapter 4. Anniversary. Trevor. A wine from tequila warns me someone is outside. She growls as a heavy hand pounds on my door. Trev, it's me. You there? It's my younger brother, Thomas. I'm not in the mood to talk to anyone. I'm on the couch with the curtains pulled. Tequila is draped across my lap while I stare at the bottle of Zinfandel in my hand, the first of many for tonight's anniversary. I'm still in my dirty work clothes. Showering and changing just feels like too much effort. Trevor, I know you're in there. Let me in. Unless you found me a no-strings-attached date for Sunday, go away. Sorry man, I asked around but it's Passport this weekend. All my friends are working. Passport is one of the biggest wine events in our area. A group of wineries opens up their cellars to offer tastes of older vintages paired with food. I'd forgotten it was this weekend. All the more reason for me to stay home. Healdsburg will be crawling with tourists. But what the hell am I supposed to do about Sunday dinner? Thomas pounds again on the door. Open up bro. If we just ignore him, he'll eventually go away. I tell Tequila as I take a swig from my bottle. Her eyebrows move as she watches me, her tail thumping in response to my voice. Trev. Damn it, open up. I know what today is. Fuck, I growl. Of course Thomas remembered what today is. My brother has always been good with birthdays, anniversaries, and anything else that has a significant date. I'm not going to let you be alone tonight. Thomas's voice echoes through the heavy wooden door. You may as well open up or I'm just going to stay out here all night and annoy the shit out of you. What do you think, Tequila? Think he's bluffing? Her ears droop, her eyebrows moving as she watches me anxiously. It's a good move, Dad, I say in my pretend dog voice. Thomas has a short attention span. I agree. I think we can wait him out on this one. She whines as Thomas's fist continues to reverberate on the front door. I take another drink. What's wrong with wanting to be left alone tonight? Can't a man have some privacy to be drunk and depressed? Thomas's incessant pounding and shouting is starting to get to tequila. Her ears are flat and she's whining again. Fuck. I can't win tonight, can I? I say to my dog. Tequila whines again. Come on, girl. I lever myself off the sofa, pausing to down the last of my zin as my feet hit the hardwood floor. My body is pleasantly buzzed, though I'm not anywhere nearly as drunk as I plan to be by the time tonight is through. In my bedroom, I open the door to Tequila's crate, her safe haven when I have company. In girl. She hops over to the crate in that awkward gate of hers, tail tucked as she slinks inside. What the fuck Thomas? I fling open the front door and glare at my younger brother. You're upsetting Tequila. Everything upsets Gimpy. Let me guess she's cowering in her crate right now? Thomas ignores the way I brace my arm against the door to block his way, ducking underneath me to come inside. Tequila was fine before you showed up. 
You need to tell Gimpy your little brother likes dogs almost as much as he likes women. Will you stop calling her that? Thomas rolls his eyes. Mom is freaking out about the number of people slated to show up for passport tomorrow. She made me haul extra cases from the warehouse and stage them in the tasting room just in case. If not for that, I would have gotten here sooner. I don't remember inviting you over. Fuck you dude. No way I'm going to let you drink by yourself tonight. Touched despite myself, I don't reply. Thomas might be my punk-ass younger brother but he's got my back. And by the way he's looking at me right now, he knows just how hard today is. How many bottles have you had? Thomas marches past me over to the couch. Only one so far. Good at least you're not too far gone yet. I intend to be here when you pass out so you don't drown in your own vomit. He goes into the kitchen and opens the wine fridge. I don't miss the way his brow wrinkles as he takes in the state of my house. Dishes piled in the sink and on the counter. Clothes wherever I happen to leave them when I got home from work. Dog food kibbles on the floor. Thomas is a neat freak of the highest order. Usually he gives me shit for being a slob, but tonight he doesn't say a word. I slump back onto the couch, rubbing at my temples as tears sting the back of my eyes. I've been plagued with memories of Elle's black dress with blue butterflies all day. I need more wine. Top shelf, right hand side, I say as Thomas rummages around in my wine fridge. Are you talking about the blend of Pinot Grigio and Semillon? Yeah. It was one of Elle's favorites. I'd been saving that for the grand finale, when I was four or five bottles in and on the verge of passing out, but fuck it. I might as well share it with my brother, since he's the only one who remembered today's anniversary. Thomas comes back with two glasses and the bottle of white wine. It's a screw cap, as a lot of white wines are, which means he doesn't need a wine opener. He twists off the cap and pours two glasses. Raising one in the air he says, to L. The girl who stole my brother's heart. I clink my glass against his, my throat too tight to respond. I choke down a long swallow. To you L, I say silently. I fucking miss you. Thomas meticulously folds up a jacket and a pair of my jeans piled on one end of the couch and sets them on the floor before taking a seat. We sit in silent companionship. This is another thing I like about my brother. He doesn't feel the need to fill every second with words like our dad does. He can small talk with the best of them, but he's also happy to be silent. Dad came to see me this morning, I say. He's on my ass again. Did he give you the lecture on how L would want you to live a good life and find happiness? Essentially, yeah. It's like he thinks the old me is just something that can be polished up and resurrected. I slam my wine glass onto the table. Everyone wants me to get on with my life, but this is the best I can do. My gesture takes in the vineyard beyond the sliding glass door in my living room. All dad cares about is me getting back out into the field to sell wine. Is that what he said? Thomas asks. Yeah. I lower my voice in a parody of our father. Our customers don't want to be passed off to some no-name I've hired from a headhunter. They want to work with the family. Thomas chuckles. What did you say? The same thing I say every time he hounds me. I'm the vineyard operations manager. He can find someone else to do sales. Is that really what you want? I look at Thomas sharply. Of course it's what I want. Being out in the field on sales calls will just make me think of L. At least out here in the vineyards, there aren't memories of her at every turn. I mean, Thomas says, if you hadn't lost L, don't look at me like that, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I just mean if L was still alive, don't you think you'd want to be out there selling our family's wine? You always seem to enjoy it before the accident. I pick up my glass again and swirl the wine, watching the pale yellow liquid coat the sides. I used to think following in dad's footsteps was my dream job, but I've never really liked crowds and small talk, not the way dad does. It's like, I just didn't know any different, you know? Dad told me when I was 10 years old that he was going to teach me how to sell wine, and I said okay. 
It never even occurred to me to take any other role in the family business. But then there was the accident, and I actually like working in the vineyards. All of Uncle Theo's farming techniques make a real difference in the grape quality. I like being part of that. I wouldn't change it, even if L was still here. Do you really mean that? Thomas asks. If L was still alive, you'd be happy working in the vineyard every day. Yeah, I really would. She always liked people a lot more than I do. Thomas chuckles. That's for sure. She always had a flock around her. She was magnetic, I agree. I could always find her at a party by searching out the largest crowd. She would be at the center of it. God, I fucking miss her. Every damn day I wake up and I miss her. I drain my glass and pour another. I miss her too, bro. She was good for you. We polish off the bottle, then another, this one a local Pinot Noir. As I'm contemplating which bottle to grab next, Thomas sets down his wine glass and says, Come on. Get your shoes. I'm not going anywhere. Yes, you are. You're coming with me to Zeke's. I have to bring my A game to the event tomorrow, and I can't do that without a solid hangover. That doesn't make any sense. Thomas raises an eyebrow. I'm pretty sure you're drunk enough for that to be solid logic. You never have solid logic. I mean it as a joke, but something in his eyes shifts. That's what dad says, Thomas grunts. Is it my imagination, or does he look disappointed? I'm too drunk to discern if that's from our father's opinion of him, or my comment. Before my sluggish brain can think of what to say, Thomas's customary upbeat smile is back in place. If you won't go to Zeke's for yourself, go for me, he says. There's a new bartender there named Minnie. She has the hottest ass you've ever seen and works on Fridays. I need a wingman. You want me to go out on the anniversary of Elle's death to help you get laid. When you say it like that, I sound like a total fucktard. You said it, not me. Look, I know you hate hearing it, but you do need to get out once in a while. I'm not trying to be like dad and tell you to get back to how things were before Elle died, but don't you think she'd like you to smile when you think about her, instead of getting shit-faced drunk by yourself with your three-legged dog? I mean shit Trev, you can miss her and still go for a night out at the old-timers bar with your brother. I take a moment to absorb that, as I think ahead to what I want to drink next. There's a good wine list at Zeke's. When you say it like that, I'm the one who sounds like a fucktard. Technically you're a drunk-ass fucktard. It's passport weekend. There will be too many people out tonight. It's Zeke's bro. Tourists don't go there. It's not fancy enough for them. Besides, you have a lot of good memories of Elle at Zeke's. Remember that pool tournament we had for her 21st birthday? I almost crack a smile. Almost. Shit, Elle was so wasted. When it was her turn at the pool table, Macarena had come on the jukebox. Elle got up on the table and started kicking the pool balls in with her feet while she executed a perfect Macarena. It was even adorable when she tripped and fell off the side, but only because I'd been there to catch her. You're smiling, Thomas says. Maybe a little. Come on, fucktard. Get your shoes. We're going to Zeke's. Chapter 5. Zeke's. Dominique. By the time Annika and I pull into Healdsburg, our home in wine country for the next 10 days, it's past dinner time. We were supposed to be here several hours ago, but Annika insisted on stopping for dim sum on the way out of Frisco. That wouldn't have been so bad if we'd known about the spring festival parade scheduled in Chinatown. It took us two hours to get out of the city. The good news is that I'm dressed in my favorite cargo pants, so at least I've been comfy for the long ride. When I get a new job, I want to find one where I can wear comfortable clothing. The aunties are never going to let us hear the end of this, I say. I bet they ate dinner without us. Of course they ate dinner without us, Annika replies. They have no sympathy for those with poor time management. We'll have to heat up the leftovers. Did Auntie Helen send you the 10-day menu? She did, hold on. I tap my phone and pull up the email. The aunties take planning and organizing to levels the Pentagon would envy. Okay, found it. 
Tonight is spaghetti with spam. Annika and I giggle in perfect unison. Spaghetti with spam is a Chen family staple. Neither of us would ever admit to eating it in public, but we secretly love it. Spam spaghetti, Annika says. Add in a little lecture on time management, and we've got a typical beginning of the annual Chen girls trip. We follow the GPS through town. Healdsburg is a quaint little town in Sonoma County wine country. It's a patchwork of bed and breakfasts, chic hotels, adorable bungalows, boutique shopping and wineries. As Annika and I wind our way through the quiet streets, it becomes clear to us that our VRBO is nowhere near the chic downtown. The map takes us to a section of very plain, very dated housing tracks from the 80s on the northeast side of town. Leave it to the aunties to pick an 80s track home for our vacation rental, Annika grumbles. We could have stayed in a B&B or one of those adorable bungalows downtown by all the shopping. I'm sure they got a screaming deal on this rental though, I point out. Only our family dedicates their life to hard work and earning money, then does everything on the cheap and actively avoids spending what they've worked so hard for. That's called good finances, Annika. That's called not enjoying life. She pulls to a stop in front of a dingy brown single-story house with a front yard overgrown with cypress bushes. God, just look at this place. It looks like a crack den from the 80s. I bet there are rats living in those bushes. I'm sure it's fine. I watched a documentary about rats on National Geographic, Annika says. Those are exactly the kinds of bushes they like to nest in. You watched a documentary on rats, I ask. You gotta get into the mind of your enemy, Dom. Neither of us moves from our seats as the car idles in front of the house. Spaghetti spam, a lecture on poor time management and rats, Annika says. Honestly, cuz, I'm not feeling it. What do you say we text the aunties, tell them we got stuck in traffic and go grab a drink somewhere? That sounds like a fantastic idea, but I don't say that. Instead I say, we can't do that. I bet they've been waiting for us. It's their bedtime. I hold up my phone to display the time. It's almost 10 o'clock. Then we're doing them a favor, Annika replies. They can go to bed now and we can go drinking. Hey, is this a chance to cross number five off my list? I dig in my cargo pants pocket and pull out Annika's post-it note with the bad girl list. Number five, lie. Even though the prospect of crossing something off the list is appealing, the feeling is at odds with the uneasiness that comes with the idea of lying to the aunties. I remind myself that free rent is on the line. Please this is the bad girl list, Annika replies. A text message lie doesn't count. You have to look the aunties in the eye and lie straight to their faces. That's not what the list says. I point at the rumpled post-it note. It just says I have to lie. I'm the one who came up with the game, and I'm also the one who has to dole out the prize, Annika says. That means I get to set the rules. But, think of this as your practice round, Annika says. Like, letting a guy feel you up on the first date before you let him take your pants off on the second. How is lying to the aunties anything like that? Annika rolls her eyes. You've only been with one guy, Dom. Do you really need me to spell this out for you? Fine. I'll do it. I tap my phone, determined to show her I can do this. As soon as I pull up the text message screen, some of the fight leaves me. My finger hoovers over the buttons. This might give me an anxiety attack, I say. Where's the girl who switched out her label designs at the 11th hour? Annika asks. That's the cousin I want to hang out with. She's been incarcerated and will never again see the light of day. Annika grins like a wolf. Hey, maybe we can get you shit-faced tonight. Then we really can cross something off the list. Now send the message. Holding my breath, my thumbs tap out a rapid message to my mom. Hit some traffic. Stopping to eat on the way. Don't wait up for us. As soon as I hit send, I giggle. The giggle starts in my throat and works its way down my esophagus all the way into my belly. Before I know what's happening, my whole body is shaking with laughter. The last time I remember feeling like this was in sixth grade, when I snuck out of my room and stole three pieces of candy from my Halloween bag, which my parents had put on top of the refrigerator. 
I hid under my bed and ate M&Ms, Snickers and Pop Rocks. I think it was the most food diet I'd ever had in one sitting up until that point. Annika watching me bursts out laughing. Feels good, doesn't it? Maybe a little, I say. Didn't Auntie Helen send us a list of all the most affordable places to eat in town? Annika pulls away from the curb. See if there are any bars on that list. I'll bet she included them. Auntie Helen is always thorough. She would have researched bars knowing that Annika and I would want to go out at night. Found it. Yep, there are bars on the list. I scan it. Zeke's looks like the best place. Their Cosmos are only six bucks each. Oh my god, there's another place that has Cosmos for $18 each. Zeke's it is. Annika types the name into her phone. I might complain about our dumpy VRBO, but that doesn't mean I want to bleed money at a bar. I can get drunk on cheap liquor, but not cheap wine? Don't be a blasphemer, Annika says. You know I never drink cheap wine. My phone buzzes with a reply text from my mom. Drive safely, she writes. See you in the morning. Check your phone for tomorrow's schedule. Breakfast is at 8. I relay the message to Annika. Good thing I packed Tylenol, Annika says. You're going to need it for your hangover tomorrow. I'm serious about crossing number one off the list cuz. Ooh, what if we get you laid tonight too? Maybe we can cross two things off the list on the first night. Despite myself, I laugh at the enthusiasm in her voice. Feels good to be a bad girl, doesn't it? Annika asks. We follow the GPS to Zeke's. Instead of taking us into downtown Healdsburg, we find ourselves driving on a two-lane road that snakes through the vineyards. There are no street lamps out here. The vineyards are drenched in black, the only source of light from Annika's Honda Civic. No wonder the cosmos are so much cheaper at this place, Annika says. We're in the middle of bumfuck Egypt. How much further? I check the phone. ETA is three minutes. If this place sucks, we're going to the place with the $18 cosmos, Annika says. We get one drink to check the vibe, then decide if we're going to stay. Light appears up ahead. It comes from a low-roofed building in a long gravel parking lot that edges up against the vineyards. I think that's it, I say. Doesn't look very busy for a Friday night. Annika pulls up into the parking lot. We're definitely not going to score you a vacation fling if there's no one here. Let's just work on getting me drunk. I still haven't completely reconciled myself to the idea of a casual vacation fling. I'm going to have to do it eventually if I want Annika to let me move into her studio, but I'm going to give myself a few days to work up to it. I can't remember the last time I was drunk. Me either, Annika says. You've been too busy for the past two years being damn perfect Dominique for that soul-sucking design firm and your asshole ex. She switches off the engine and we get out, heading to the bar. Zeke's is fronted by a long wooden porch and railing. The doors are wide open, spilling inviting light across the gravel parking lot. Open windows in the back illuminate the vineyards behind the bar. Somewhere in the distance, an owl hoots. I immediately know I like this place. It's nothing like the financial district bars back in the city that Oliver loved. Those places were crammed with clones, everyone in suits and pencil skirts and 27 pounds of makeup with their overpriced martinis. I hated those places but Oliver thrived in them. He always said they were great for networking, which is what he usually did when we went out, while I often ended up sitting alone. Outside this musty old bar with warm lighting, I feel at home in my baggy pants, simple cotton tee and makeup-free face. My hair is twisted up into two messy buns on either side of my head. There may not have been a lot of cars in the parking lot, but there's a decent number of people inside. There's one thing that immediately strikes me as odd though. Save for the bartender, who's a perky adorable 20-something with tattoos and a nose ring, everyone in this place is, oh my god, Annika hisses in my ear. It's the fucking geriatric bar. I smother a laugh against my palm. She isn't wrong. Most of the people in this place are men, and every last one of them looks old enough to be a grandpa. They're dressed in dirty jeans, rumpled button-down shirts with the sleeves rolled up, and old leather cowboy hats. I think this is the place where locals hang out, I whisper. Old locals, you mean, Annika says. I like it. I want to stay. 
I take a few steps toward the bar, pulling Annika with me. Really? Why? Her eyes narrow. You think this is getting you a free pass on the vacation fling, don't you? You know there's such a thing as age gap dating, right? I hear her, but I'm too distracted to reply. There's something about this place that makes the tips of my fingers start to tingle. The smell of the wooden walls and the battered wood floor soaked with years of alcohol. The dirty light fixtures that look like someone hung them in the 70s and have never bothered to dust them in the last 50 years. The two deer trophies in the back corner. The oversized empty wine bottles lining a long shelf along the back wall, all of them as dirty as the light fixtures. I love it all. And the old farmers. I like the way they lean around tables and talk while they sip at their tumblers. A few of them play card games. Before I realize what I'm doing, I've grabbed a bar stool that gives me a perfect view of a table with four old men in their rumpled shirts. My hands dip into the big pocket of my cargo pants to retrieve my sketchbook and pencils. Before I graduated college, not a day passed when I didn't draw. I often drew during school lectures as a way to help me process and remember the information. For me, drawing is a bit like breathing, essential to living. Or at least, it had been until I'd graduated and landed the job at Presidio. Then I became too busy and too stressed to draw. It was a small incursion at first. It began with me swapping out my preferred cargo pants for the suffocating pencil skirts and precarious heels. I couldn't exactly stash drawing materials and clothing barely stretchy enough to stash myself in. Then the work started to pile up. I'd forget about the drawing supplies in my desk drawer. And when I got home from the office, I either had a mountain of work to get done for Sophia, or I was too tired to draw. After a while, my various pencils and sketch pads ended up scattered around the studio in random places. A thin sheen of dust collected on them, because who has time to draw when you're working 12-hour days? Now, for the first time in forever, the compulsion to draw is back. It feels like a reunion with a long-lost friend. I start to sketch, tracing the outline of the four farmers playing cards while they sip at their tumblers of what looks like whiskey. Annika has struck up a conversation with the cute bartender. Snatches of their conversation penetrate my ears, but I barely notice. A pink beverage has appeared in front of me. A cosmopolitan. A few persistent pokes in the ribcage from Annika reminds me that I have an item to cross off a list tonight. I'm supposed to get so drunk that I puke. Well, it shouldn't take that many drinks. And honestly, I'd agree to just about anything so long as I can hang on to this feeling. Onto this moment of connecting so perfectly to my colored pencils and the picture coming to life on the page. Chapter 6. The Girl with the Colored Pencils. Trevor. Thanks to the bottles of wine I'd consumed at the bungalow, a comfortable buzz is in full effect by the time Thomas and I pull into the parking lot of Zeke's. Despite this, a familiar tightening pulls at my muscles. What had I been thinking? Why did I agree to Zeke's of all places? Healdsburg has its fair share of bars, but Zeke's is the place where locals come. Out in the vineyards of Dry Creek Valley, it's the sort of place you have to know about to find. It's a favorite hangout for the farmers and winery workers. My grandpa spends so much time here, he should probably pay rent for the table he and his buddies always occupy. Which means that everyone in this place will know who I am. The likelihood of someone telling my parents they saw me out is pretty high. It reminds me of the Sunday dinner threat hanging over my head. Bring a date or face one of my mom's setups, try evading dinner altogether, and the family will invade my house. The pain of missing L, of the two-year anniversary since her death, had me on edge before I started drinking. The looming stress of Sunday dinner, combined with the murmur of voices carrying out from the bar, makes me wish I was already passed out in my bed with tequila. I hang back as Thomas starts in the direction of Zeke's. This wasn't a good idea, I say. Of course it was a good idea. The old dudes have all missed seeing you. Come on I bet Gramps will be here. Thomas grabs my arm. I resist. Dude, Thomas says, I'm not asking you to pretend you don't feel like shit. You lost the love of your life. I get it. I know I told you I wanted to flirt with the bartender, 
but I've never needed a wingman for that shit. I just wanted to get you out of the house, have you talked to people a little bit? The fight goes out of me. You're determined not to let me be alone in my misery, aren't you? I know you think Gimpy counts as not being alone, but yeah, you need to be around human beings once in a while. Her name isn't Gimpy. I know. Thomas flashes me his signature, million dollar grin. I just call her that because it pisses you off. I wouldn't make fun of her if she let me scratch her ears once in a while. Come on, let's finish getting you shit-faced. Drinks are on me tonight. We climb up the wooden steps that lead to the wide porch that front seeks. The familiar smell of old wood and stale liquor hits my nose, and a wave of nostalgia goes through me. I hadn't even realized how much I've missed this place. I used to come here almost every Friday night to have a drink and play a few rounds of cards with Gramps and his friends. L came with me sometimes too, and was always very popular among the resident farmers. I step through the doors. There's a lot more people here than I'm used to on a Friday night. Along with the usual array of old-time farmers, there's a smattering of tourists. I can always peg the tourists by the way they dress. Locals don't pick something from the nice side of the wardrobe when visiting Zeke's. Looks like a few tourists in town for passport found their way out here. Don't worry, it still meets your antisocial standards. Thomas slaps me on the shoulder and saunters off to the bar. I spot Minnie, the cute bartender he's here for. She's definitely his type, with just enough tattoos and piercings to keep her interesting, but not so many that our mother would run screaming. Not that Thomas has a habit of bringing girls to the house. My eyes skip past Minnie to the customer sitting at the bar in front of her. She looks part Asian, and is having an animated discussion with Minnie about the best way to deflect propositions from customers. I can only assume she works in the hospitality business by what she's saying. From her too tight top to her ass-hugging jeans, it's easy to imagine she gets her fair share of attention at whatever she does. She's clearly a tourist. I once had this customer who would not go away, even after I said no to his face four times. A wicked smile cracks her face, so when he wouldn't take no for an answer, I gave him my mom's phone number. Annika, you're a sly bitch. Minnie chuckles as she pours a Cosmo into a martini glass. I'm going to steal that move from you. I always tell guys I don't sleep where I shit. That works surprisingly well. Thomas clearly has his work cut out for him. Well, my brother has never been one to be put off by challenges. In fact, challenges only make things more appealing to him. He's more like our salesman dad than I am. Minnie sets the Cosmo on the counter. A hand snakes around Annika and picks it up. I hadn't noticed anyone else sitting with her, but as Annika shifts, I catch sight of a second woman. She might be related to Annika, though she looks to be full Asian. She wears baggy cargo pants and a fitted white t-shirt. Her black hair is twisted into two buns on top of her head, and she's leaning over the bar with a colored pencil in her hand. Zeke's blurs around me, the warm chatter morphing in a soft background buzz. I freeze mid-step, my entire world honing in on the girl with the Cosmo and the colored pencils. L? Time skips like a broken record. A memory of Elle is superimposed over the artist, and I recall bringing her here one night after a movie. I don't even remember what we saw, but I remember laughing about a scene we had both particularly liked. Elle had been drinking Chardonnay, her favorite wine, and I'd ordered a glass of port. The memory comes back strong, almost like a moment of deja vu. It's gone almost as soon as it arrived, but it leaves behind a sensation of warm smiles and laughter. It's disconcerting to remember what it feels like to be happy. It's the girl with the colored pencils. She looks just enough like Elle to send me into a tailspin. I can't stop staring at her. I need a drink. Many of them. Trev. Thomas yanks on my arm. Trevor, you okay? I'm okay. I need a bottle of red. On it bro. Thomas beelines back to the bar. Hey boys. Gramps's familiar voice calls out to us. I'd been so busy staring at the girl with the colored pencils that I hadn't even noticed Gramps and his gang at their customary table. I wander over, but I keep the girl in my periphery. She switches out a green pencil and picks up a blue one. What is she working on so intently? An empty Cosmo glass sits next to her, and she's slurping on her second like she's on a mission. Trevor? I realize Gramps has been saying something to me. Sorry, 
I yanked my gaze away from the girl with the colored pencils. What did you say, Gramps? I asked if you wanted to play the next round of gin with us, but I can see you have other things on your mind. He winks at me, his faded blue eyes sliding in the direction of the bar. Before anyone else can catch his drift, he adds, you'd better go keep an eye on Thomas before he offends our bartender. We like Minnie. Don't let him scare her away, will you? On it, Gramps. I turn back toward the bar, my gaze once again tracking to the girl. Trev. Gramps touches my arm. Yeah? I'm glad to see you out. His wrinkled face rumples into a warm smile. I hear what he's not saying. Gramps is the only person in my life who really understands what I went through after the accident. He lost his wife, my grandmother, after 50 years of marriage. I remember him sitting with me, after Elle's funeral. Trevor, he had said, I'm not going to bullshit you. You're never going to stop missing her, but that's okay. When you love someone with your whole heart, you're supposed to feel it when they're gone. It's the price you pay for loving someone. It's part of life, and that's okay. His face had creased with a smile. It's a price I gladly pay every day for the 50 years I had with your grandmother. Gramps never tries to minimize my pain or convince me to move on. He knows coming here tonight wasn't easy. Thanks Gramps. Anytime Trev. I leave Gramps to his card game and find a seat at the bar, purposely not sitting with my brother. Partially because I'm not up for small talk, but mostly because sitting halfway around the bar by myself gives me a clear view of the girl with the colored pencils. Thomas sends Minnie down with a glass of red wine for me. I glance at it, then order an entire bottle of cab from her instead. I'm on a mission to get so shit-faced that I fully expect Thomas to have to carry me to the car. There's no reason to waste time ordering one glass at a time. This way I can take care of my own refills. Besides, Minnie's conversation with the half-Asian girl is growing more animated by the second, and my brother is actively trying to insert himself into it. She won't want me to keep bothering her every few minutes for another glass. You guys aren't the only ones who get hit on, Thomas declares. You should see the cougars who come through our winery. If I was into that, I could be married to a kinky rich woman and kept in the luxury I deserve. Dear God. My brother and his mouth. I take a long drink from my glass and hunch over, positioning myself behind my wine bottle, in an effort to be subtle in my preoccupation with the artist girl. She takes a big swallow from her Cosmo, flips a page in her book and resumes drawing. For a brief second I think our eyes meet from across the bar, but it happens so fast that I'm not sure if I imagined it or not. Oh please, Annika says, you think you deserve the lap of luxury because you happen to be pretty. Oh hell no. Thomas deflects her obvious disdain with one of his big smiles. It's my charming personality that makes me a shoe-in for a life of luxury. The women laugh, both of them shifting their attention to Thomas which of course he soaks up like a sponge. He loves being the center of attention, even if the women are giving him endless shit. I can't tell if the artist girl has noticed me or not. Strands of her black hair have come loose from her buns and hang in front of her face, almost like she's using them as a curtain. I'd swear her eyes dart in my direction every so often, but I'm drunk enough by now that I don't trust my perceptions. What the hell is she working on so intently in that notebook? I don't know why I think she would be paying attention to me when she has my loud-mouthed dynamic brother describing the over-the-hill women, his words, not mine, who flirt with him at the winery. No, Annika says, it's not your charming personality the older women like. I've heard the rich old cougars like them dumb and moldable. Oh but not too dumb, Minnie says. They need to be smart enough to know where the pool towels and suntan lotion are kept. You ladies are full of compliments tonight, Thomas says, completely undeterred by their insults. Not only do you think I'm hot but you think I'm smart too. The girls laugh. Thomas orders a round of drinks. Now there's a guy who is the walking definition of figuring out how to get to yes. Maybe he should be the one dad grooms for sales. Thomas might have a wild side but he's nothing if not persistent. If he went after wine accounts with half the enthusiasm that he uses on women, Moretti Winery would probably double its revenue. The girl flips to another page in her sketchbook and resumes drawing. Curiosity is getting the better of me. What is she drawing that has her so enamored? 
How is she not distracted by the antics of the three people right next to her? Before I realize what I'm doing, I'm working out various ways to start a conversation with her. What sort of girl is she? She's obviously not the sort who's into meaningless small talk, or she'd be up to her elbows with the others. Sitting next to her and cracking a joke is out of the question. I'm not nearly as funny as Thomas, and if his antics aren't enough to get her attention, nothing I can say will top that. What if I just sit down next to her and introduce myself? I quickly rule out that option. With wine on my breath and eyes that are obviously drunk, I'll come off like a dumb jerk. Then again, maybe it's not such a bad idea. With another few glasses of wine in me, the idea seems better by the second. The desire to talk to her is starting to feel like an itch I have to scratch, and it gets more intense with every swallow of wine. By the time I've reached the bottom of my bottle of cab, my head is good and foggy. The pain I've carried since Elle's accident is distantly numb. Everything is just about perfect, except I still haven't figured out a way to strike up a conversation with Zeke's artist in residence. I move halfway down the bar, eliminating five seats between me and the artist. There's still an additional five stools between us, plus Thomas and Annika, but it's the best move I've come up with. Minnie is so deep in conversation and laughter with Thomas and Annika, that it takes three tries to get her attention. She saunters over to me. What can I get you? A bottle of the Moretti Old Vine Zinfandel. It's customary for winery owners to buy their own wine from local establishments. It's seen as a classy way to support the business, and is a good way to get the staff to recommend the wine to their customers. The tip she's going to get from our bar tap should make her night. Coming right up, Minnie plunks the open bottle of wine down in front of me. Enjoy cowboy. I'm not a cowboy. I don't have any cows. Minnie rolls her eyes at me and walks away. Someone else laughs. I look up in time to see the artist smother her mirth and duck her head. I stare at her a few seconds longer than necessary, my thoughts trying to catch up with what just happened. Had she laughed at what I'd said? Does she think I'm funny? That has to be a good sign I think, filling my glass almost to the top. If she laughed at what I said, it means she's watching me. And even if I hadn't been trying to be funny, it's a good sign when you can make someone laugh, right? I systematically lay into my latest bottle, my brain somersaulting as I try to invent more funny things to say to the pretty artist girl. There's something refreshing about the relaxed way she dresses. It's nice compared to the way most tourist girls make themselves up, with impractical shoes and too much makeup. Hey bro. Thomas gets my attention as I'm working on my third glass of Zinfandel. Come join us. You look like a loser down there by yourself. There's a suspicious twinkle in his eye, but my brain is too foggy to dwell on it. Moving from my seat to the one near my brother would get rid of the last five barstools between me and the artist. I'm not sure how I can strike up a conversation with her over the heads of Thomas, Minnie, and Annika, but my odds have to be improved somewhat with vicinity on my side. I call back to my brother over the noisy bar. Yeah, okay. Maybe I can go around my brother and his friends and sit by the artist. Would she be willing to take a break from her cosmos to have the last glass of Zin in my bottle? Or will she just be annoyed that I'm interrupting her? Armed with my bottle and my fingerprint laden full to the brim wine glass, I start toward my brother. My steps are heavy and slow thanks to the alcohol soaking my veins, but I'm not so inebriated that I'm in danger of falling. Or at least that's what I think until Thomas looks me right in the eye and sticks out his foot. I trip and go down, the glass of Zinfandel leaping from my hands, and splashing all over the girl with the colored pencils. Cheers everyone, and welcome to the author commentary portion of this very first episode. I'm Marie Matthew, the author of The Bad Girl List, and I'm here to share the inside scoop on the very first episode of The Bad Girl List. So, cheers! Okay, first and foremost you guys, we must talk about wine because I love wine, as you can probably tell from the book. And this is what I'm drinking today. This is a local winery called Dot Wines and I am drinking their amazing rosé. Oh my God, it's so good. Mm. 
a very good friend of mine is the owner and the winemaker. She and her husband do this brand together and the wines are super high end, very low volume. It's the kind of winery that I describe in the book with Trevor Moretti and his family. Like it's that kind of high end, like really fine wine, small production, and it's delicious. So this wine that I'm drinking today is a rosé. It's from the Corbus Vineyard here in Sonoma County. Only 270 cases of this wine were made, which is a shame because it's so delicious. God, it smells so good. You can smell like the guava and the watermelon. And then when you taste it, you totally get like fresh summer strawberries, a really, really balanced acidity because sometimes rosé can be like way too acid and it like curls the back of your mouth. So yeah, you get those really fresh summer strawberries and then like bright red cherries. So, so delicious. I'm gonna link to Dot Wines in the show notes. So if you wanna check out her wine, please do. Oh, and if you've made it this far, then you've definitely heard the commercials for the Hello Date Night box. So. Dot Wines and I are partnering for Valentine's Day. So you can get a bottle of this fabulous rosé with either an autographed copy of The Bad Girl List, or you can get a bottle of the rosé with the Hello Date Night book box. And in the box, you get an autographed copy of The Bad Girl List, along with a beautiful scented rose candle, a feminine pleasure toy, and a little discreet travel bag. So. Be sure to check out Dot Wines, both for her amazing, delicious wines uh, and also for these really fun Valentine specials that we are running. We're only gonna be running it through the end of February and the book boxes, they're definitely a limited edition. I didn't make that many. So if you're interested, be sure to go over and check those out. So on this very first episode, I thought it'd be really fun to talk about the inspiration behind episode one. And I wanted to talk primarily about the setting and also the characters. So before I dive in, I do wanna say that when I write, I receive inspiration both from my own worldly experiences, uh, you know, feelings, events, whatever. Um, but then I also receive inspiration from the universe. I have some pretty strong psychic abilities and usually in my books, I usually have some kind of a ghost or a spirit or some kind of energetic entity that comes forward to work with me. Usually we're working on healing some type of trauma. The work that I do is called psychopomp. I talk about that quite extensively in the Meet the Author episode. So if you're curious to hear more about that, I definitely recommend. I will talk more about that in regards to this book when we get later into the season, because I would spoil if I started talking about it now. So to start out with, I'm just gonna talk about the worldly inspiration for this first episode that you listened to today. And of course, I can't talk about worldly inspiration without talking about the town of Healdsburg where the story takes place. Healdsburg is a real place in Sonoma County, California. I do live in Sonoma County. I've lived here for 24 years. I absolutely love Sonoma County. I love wine as um, I think you got that. <laughs> I love wine, especially rosé is totally my wine. My daughter, my daughter jokes, rosé all day, mom, rosé all day. because <laughs> She knows I have cases of rosé in my closet. <laughs> mm but it's not all as good as this rosé. So yeah, I live in Sonoma County. I lived in Healdsburg for 16 years. I bought my very first house there with my husband. So I love the town. It has so much character. It has so many facets. It's definitely that like super cute, turn of the century, like bungalows in the downtown. There's like really chic bars, really amazing restaurants. I mean, I think there's two or three Michelin starred restaurants in this tiny little town of 10,000 people. So it's kind of amazing. You get really great food. You can also spend a lot of money. <laughs> you can go broke shopping in that town. But it's also the type of town that really pulls together. So 
if something happens and somebody, a local in the town, like runs into some kind of a hardship or some kind of a struggle, like the town is there. Like we rally around each other. And even though I don't live in Healdsburg anymore, I'm only six miles away from Healdsburg. Um, my husband still works there. And my daughter still goes to school there. So it's just a wonderful town with so much character and all the places that you go in the books, they are based on real places. I renamed things. I rejigged a few things and I am including a link to Healdsburg in the show notes. So if you want to like drill down and explore a little more, and hey, if you come to California, definitely come visit Healdsburg because it, it really is such a, a wonderful little town. Next, I'm going to talk about the characters of Dominique and Trevor and what inspired the two of them. I live here in Sonoma County. I've lived here for 24 years. And of that 24 years, I've spent the last 18 and a half working in the wine industry. So I do have a day job. <laughs> I have to say working in booze is a blast. <laughs> it's super fun. Little side anecdote, when I was hired by the company that I'm working for now, they made me sign like this mountain of disclosure paperwork regarding social media. And then we even had to watch a webinar on proper use of social media when it comes to company products, like certain hashtags you had to use and things you could and could not do. And honestly, I don't have enough room in my brain for all that stuff. So my takeaway from that was that I should never, ever, ever <laughs> mention any of my company products in any of my social media postings. So the wines that I drink on this show are not gonna be from my company. They're all gonna be like just personal wines in my library collection that I enjoy, but I have no affiliates with them whatsoever. <laughs> I just thought it was, it was worth disclosing that. In my time in the wine industry, I have had two main roles and the first is in procurement. And that is just a super fancy word for saying I get paid to spend somebody else's money. <laughs> sometimes millions of dollars. So in my career, I have focused really on purchasing the wine components. So I've purchased wine bottles, wine corks, wine labels, wine cartons, wine screw caps, all, all that good stuff. Besides wine packaging, I've also developed spirits and cannabis. So I've done lots and lots of super cool packaging. And then the second half of my wine career has really been focused in new product development. And so what I get to do is I get to take the ideas that the designers come up with and I get to bring them into the world. <laughs> I take an idea on paper and I figure out how to do it in the real life so we can actually get a real product on the shelf. My career in the wine industry definitely inspired Dominique's character. So when you meet Dominique, you find her smack in the middle of a design meeting with a winery. Having worked in packaging development for so long, I like to describe myself as kind of being Switzerland. So I. I'm always finding myself having to find a happy middle ground between like the super creative designy people and then like the super practical people. Th those are the two like polarizing sides that I'm always having to try to be Switzerland, work between the two and find a happy middle ground. So I definitely took that paradigm between practicality and creativity and I dropped Dominique right into the middle of it, which was super fun. And then since in the real world, I always have to be Switzerland and I never get to choose sides. I got to choose a side in the book. <laughs> which was fun. And of course I had to pick the side of the artist because I am an artist. I love the idea of pushing convention and, you know, doing something new and taking tradition and turning it upside down on its head. And I absolutely, I love artists and, and creative people that do that sort of thing. Even though in the real world, I have to say, whoa, <laughs> if you do that, it's going to cost the company a whole bunch of money. Are you sure you want to do that? So it was fun to just like, totally be on the side of the artist in this book. And that's what Dominique's character represents is creativity and pushing boundaries and 
turning ideas upside down. And you know, Sophia, her boss, represents the the practical side that I'm that I'm talking about. And I know I portray her as an evil bitch in the story because you know she fires her. There's got to be <laughs> obstacles for the main characters, but you know her argument is actually quite valid. You know, when designing wine packaging or any kind of packaging, do you want it to look like everything else on the shelf so consumers aren't confused? Or do you wanna break boundaries and do something really fucking weird and then people can't figure out what it is? I mean, <laughs> it's a valid question. So yes, even though I portrayed her as being evil in the book, she actually does have founded philosophy <laughs> in her argument. Um, but anyway, like I said, it was super fun to come down on the side of the artist and, and totally be on her side and wave my pom-poms on that side because secretly that's what I would love to do. And then I'm sure you noticed, but I also made her character Chinese American. I'm Chinese American and there's not a lot of romance books with Asian women in it. And I feel like there's the stereotype for Chinese women that were either like fucking badass ninjas or were like super composed, demure, smart, quiet, and polite. You're either one or the other. <laughs> there's no like happy middle ground, but honestly, we're just like every other people out there with, with all the gamut of emotions. I'm not a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> and while I am polite, I'm also not quite quite as like put together as, as you might see in some of those stereotypical Asians. So I did like to play on a little bit of that. I like to share some of that cultural relevancy. And you know, I think there's a really different experience between being a direct immigrant to America versus being several generations removed from the original immigrants. As you go through each layer, through each generation, that culture does get diluted. And that's definitely been my experience. So I really wanted to portray this type of culture where the, I think I'm fifth generation, fifth generation Chinese American. So yes, I do still have some strong ties to my culture. We still do celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, we do make dumplings. <laughs> As you'll see later in the book, they make dumplings. We absolutely love Spam spaghetti. <laughs> Spam's a big Asian thing. Um, but yeah, it's something my grandma always made. But like, I don't speak Chinese. My mother doesn't speak Chinese. Like there's things that just get lost with each generation. And it's just a completely different cultural experience. So wanted to tap into that and just share it a little bit in the book. So I hope that comes through and I hope you enjoyed reading about uh, a character with maybe a slightly different perspective than the stereotypical Caucasian. I really hope you have enjoyed this very first episode. I thought it was a lot of fun. There's something in the romance genre that I call first contact. We, we watch a lot of romance movies in my house and my daughter, she always gets into them. And a lot of times in those first contact moments in a romance movie, she'll scream. <laughs> Usually because like something like really awkward or, or horrible happens when the, when the couple first meets. So I definitely was going for a little bit of that when Trevor and Dom meet. So, I, and I'm super curious. Do you think the whole setup is like a setup for enemies to lovers? Like, is she gonna be really pissed that he ruined her favorite pair of pants? Or do you think like it's the best icebreaker on the planet? <laughs> I'm super curious to see what you think. Feel free to leave comments on YouTube. You can also drop me an email at romancingmarie and I will try to answer questions and comments in future episodes. And I, I do try to reply to people when they leave me messages. I really love hearing from my listeners and my readers. So yeah, feel free. I think I mentioned in the intro that if you are enjoying the story, but you just, you don't wanna listen with commercials or you just don't wanna wait 
for each episode to drop and you just want to get it all now, the entire season is available at mariematthew.com. I have ebooks, I have the audiobooks, and I have autographed hardbacks and autographed paperbacks. But also don't forget about Dot Wines with our my partnership there with this amazing rosé which you don't want to miss out on. So yeah, the amazing rosé wine that you can have for Valentine's Day with either an autographed book or with the Hello Date Night book box. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I'm super excited to be doing this show and just showing up every week to hang out with my listeners and my readers. It's super fun for me. So cheers and I will see you next week. Bye.